Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to crisis management, business continuity, disaster planning, COVID-19, crisis management, uh, emergency management, anything that's relatable to those subjects. Speaking of which, if there is a topic you'd like us to talk about on the show, or you'd like to be a guest on the show to talk about something, please go to the Voice America page uh, for the show underneath the graphic. There is a button that says send the host an email. I do get all emails, and I do respond to everything I get. If there is a product or service you want to promote on the show as well and advertise, you can reach me the same way, and I can get you some information about that. I want to thank everybody at Stone Road and their product, BoastAssessment.com, that allows you to have an online uh, and manage your progress of your business continuity management programs, know how well you're doing in certain areas uh, based on your own self-assessments and where you can focus your resources to bring your scores up. So thanks everyone to Stone Road for the sponsorship today. And I'd like to thank everyone at solutionsreview.com for adding my book, Testing Disaster Recovery and Business Continuity Plans, to their 16 most essential books for business continuity directors list. Uh, Very humbled by that. Thank you very much for the honor. And congratulations to the other 15 authors on that list. Speaking of books, I think everyone by now knows that I've said it so many times on this show, I love to read. I read about everything for entertainment, you know, and knowledge and, you know, skills, training, everything. I just love to read. And today is no different. I have an author of a book who, it's not a big book, but it's full of some really good information. And I was, I'm really glad that uh, he was able to join us today. So I'd like to welcome to the show the author of Practical Business Continuity Management, Top Tips for Effective Real-World Business Continuity Management, Andy Osborne. Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Ple- pleasure to be here. Uh, now I know who you are, and uh, you know I've read your bio. And we've chatted back and forth. Can you give our listeners, uh, you know, that are literally around the globe, a little bit of a, a bio on yourself, what you do, and uh, you know how you got into the industry? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I kind of fell into the industry quite a long time ago now. Actually, um, I started life, um, working life, way back in 1979. I can't believe how, how the time's flown. Actually, um, and in, in IT, back in the in the days of mainframe computers, the size of small houses. Um, and I started as a, as a computer operator, humble computer operator. And and um, after a, f- a few years uh, working um, with with IT in that respect, I kind of fell into um, IT disaster recovery, as we called it in those days, because it sounds far more exciting, doesn't it, than backups and restores. Um, <laughs> and that was back in, I think it was 1988, which is 30-something years ago now, isn't it? Um, and, and the way that I fell in was that the company that I worked for um, had a, uh, a an, an IT disaster recovery site. Uh, in the north of England uh, with a mainframe computer in it and, and a couple of clients. And they used to borrow the the uh, the IT guys from from uh, the the, um, the organization that I worked for to go and assist with their recovery testing. So I used to travel up, up, up the M6 motorway um, to a place called Preston um, on a regular basis and help um, clients to restore their systems from their backup tapes. So that's how I kind of fell into it. Um, I worked at that company for... Uh, a number of years, actually, in various guises. So I moved on from the IT support side into into customer support. I did a bit of project management, a bit of product management. And um, around 94, I moved uh, moved jobs, moved to another organization, uh, which was an IT outsourcing company. 
and I uh, I moved there as uh, an IT disaster recovery and business continuity consultant with a small team of, of analysts, helping to uh, helping their uh, to develop and test IT recovery plans predominantly for their customers. But then I started getting more into the into the business side of things. Business continuity was becoming a thing around about then. It was uh, moving out out of the mm-hmm. data center and more into the business. So I got really interested in in the business side of things, and so developed that consultancy. Um, um, provision to to incorporate more of the business side of things and, and got really interested in that um, and um, how do I how do I put this um, I think there's a rogue gene in the Osborne gene pool that, that, that wants us all to be self-employed at some point and run our own businesses and my father was uh, run a business my sister and her husband run a business so did my brother and it was my turn I guess and um, I had one of those light bulb moments I, I didn't know what the business was going to be but I always knew that I was going to run a business of some description uh, and I had a light bulb moment when I was working at this uh, outsourcing company and doing consultancy that the business could be consultancy so I could effectively sell myself so I took the plunge um, in uh, uh, 1997 and set up my company, Acumen, to provide um, independent consultancy services um, focusing on business continuity and, and IT recovery. Um, and since then, uh, I've helped uh, numerous clients, over 200 clients, to uh, design, implement, maintain, test, learn about and do various other things with their business continuity plans. Um, but more importantly, and I, I, I probably bore my clients sick when I say this to them because I say it all the time, but more importantly, with their business continuity capability, because I really do strongly believe there's a huge difference between having a business continuity plan and having a business continuity capability. Uh, and that's what I'm interested in developing with my clients. Uh, so when I talk about capability, I talk about capability in terms of the the people that would come together to put those plans into operation, which kind of implies um, elements of awareness and education and testing and exercising and various other things. And also capability in terms of the strategies and the solutions that underpin those plans. Um, so it's those two areas that, 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 that um, I'm interested in, in developing rather than simply writing plans for people. Well. There's lots of information there, and I guess the rest from '97, uh, you know, is all history. You know, that's how the book came about. And you know, uh, it's funny you started your own business the year I got into the the industry. Okay. Back in '97. <laughs> now, at the end, so so thanks very much for sharing your time uh, with me today. Um, now, just at the end, you started talking about you know business continuity is uh, more. You know, you think it's more than just writing a, a BCP plan, and that's actually something we're going to talk about today. Why is business continuity management more than just a documented plan to you? Um, because having seen a, a large number of plans over the years, a lot of plans actually, um, some of them look really nice until you lift the covers and start uh, sort of lifting the stones and finding out that there's no substance to them, because um, they make a number of assumptions um, that that potentially don't hold water. Um, now, we all have to make assumptions when we put our plans together, so there's no getting away from that, really. But sometimes we need to go back and challenge and validate those assumptions and make sure they, they actually give us what, what we think. And back in the old days, one of the first uh, plan reviews that I did, actually, as, a, as an independent consultant, was um, had a large IT recovery element to it. And I remember that one of the key assumptions was that a, uh, a, a data center with a mainframe in it was available to them within 24 hours, uh, kind of ready and waiting, and they'd no, made no provision for this. So how they were going to find this data center with the right IT and the, and, and the, and the right support was, was beyond me. And it kind of struck me that it's, it's easy to write a plan that looks good. But we need to make sure that there's more to it than that. And as I say, it's that capability in terms of, in that case, in terms of the strategies and the solutions that underpin that plan, whether it's strategies for IT recovery or whether it's strategies for communication or, or for dealing with, with uh, loss of people or, or, or other technology or, or plant and equipment, whatever it happens to be. Um, if we think we're going to be able to recover our, our business operations within certain timescales, Sometimes we need to be a bit more proactive about things than just assuming that we can we can find things at the drop of a hat. Uh, actually, that's got me thinking now. See, one question, and I'm already starting to go off script. You mentioned time, time frames. Um, I, I remember doing uh, IT, uh, like facilitating really large IT mainframe recovery where from backups right, right from scratch, and then 
you you know you bring up the networks and the emails and all the applications and you bring in the users and everything and they always said and you you said it in your description um you know things have to be ready in 24 hours by the time you added travel time and all building up the mainframe it's you know you're you've blown your time frames out of the water how do you feel about you know identifying everything as a time frame are they must haves or are they just things to shoot for under perfect circumstances I think um, I, I can't, the answer really is, I guess, is it depends on, on what the situation is. Uh, sometimes we have to have things within certain timescales to meet our business obligations or, or whatever. Sometimes they're an aspiration. But I think uh, picking up on, I think, what you're saying was it, it's it's been a common issue for um, IT guys versus business people um, over the years that I've helped clients to develop their plans is that that kind of difference between in perception between uh, what constitutes a recovery time objective for a, a, a process and what constitutes mm-hmm. a, a recovery time objective for an IT system. And if we take the IT recovery time objective, that typically uh, is seen by the IT guys as four hours, eight hours, 24 hours, whatever the, the recovery time is from the point at which we activate or invoke our plans. Whereas the business often see it as 24 hours from the point of failure. So if it takes us four, six, eight hours to make that decision to invoke our plans, we've mm-hmm. kind of already eaten into that recovery time. And the poor odd IT guys then have 16 hours to recover, whereas they thought they got 24. And and one of the things that I'm I'm keen on, and and and, and it's still the case actually, despite the fact that we're moving more towards cloud-based IT and and quicker recovery and 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 less data loss and all the rest of it, all those good things that come with technology advances. We still sometimes come across that situation where there's a difference in opinion between the business and IT. So I'm really keen on brokering those conversations between the two parties to make sure we have an understanding of what we mean um, and uh, and can actually sort of satisfy the, the requirements as, as, as much as possible. So if and one of the things I say is that if we know what the recovery time objective is and we know how long it takes to actually recover that process or that IT system or that activity and we know how long it takes to, to 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 get there before we can we can do that if there's any travel time involved or if there's any delivery of equipment or, or or backups or what have you we then can work backwards and and work out how long we have to make that decision and still meet the recovery time objective um, it's a shame i can't put a little diagram up for you but <laughs> but you can't get what, what i mean so so if if we know that it takes 12 hours to recover the the thing the system the the, the process and we know that it takes 4 hours to get to that point and the overall recovery time objective is 24 hours. That's what it's 12 plus 4 is 16. We've got eight hours effectively in which we need to make that decision. Otherwise, we can't possibly meet the recovery time objective. It also means that we've potentially got some thinking time and don't necessarily need to knee-jerk and make an instant decision. But it does mean that we've got a, a, you know, a finite amount of time to, to make that decision in order to meet the, the ultimate objective. How, how do you go about communicating something like that? You know, I, I think some of your experiences are the same as mine, you know, where someone uh, on the business side says 24 hours and that's it. I, after that, you know, X, Y, Z is going to occur. And IT is, you know, well, it's, we're still investigating up until a certain point, then we make that call. You know, you, you described it, you know, the point of um, declaration, you know, versus the point of the actual incident. So how do you go about, you know, explaining that to people? so that they're on the same page yeah i I think it largely comes back to 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 what i said it's about brokering those conversations so that um i think it's 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 not unusual for perfectly well-meaning it departments to make assumptions on behalf of the business as to what they think the 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 criticality of a system is or what the recovery time should be and that's often based on on the um the the technology that's in place at the time um but sometimes we don't go back and and tell the business that that's the case uh, mm. and, and and make sure that you know we've joined joined the dots between the two bits of understanding really so a lot of it is just about communication and it's also yeah. about involving them in exercising and testing so that we kind of understand what the what the issues are and it's interesting because um again we're kind of going a little bit off piste uh, but um would pick up on the uh, business impact analysis for instance and I, I listened to your um uh, podcast with john jackson a while ago and and he made some really interesting points about business impact analysis that maybe we'll pick up on in, in, later in this discussion um and um one of them was that he was he was talking about doing the analysis at a process level rather than uh, 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 for systems or departments and i think it's it's important to get that bigger picture 
and therefore to get the right people involved in those discussions. Um, and what I was going to say was, um, so during that business impact analysis process, when we tease out the recovery time objectives for the processes, for the activities, for the IT systems that support them and so on, um, quite often the conversation goes something like, uh, Mr. Business Person says, I absolutely need this system back within no more than 20 minutes. Uh, because otherwise it's the end of the world. And the IT guys say, well, that's fine. But at the moment, with the current technology and the strategy that we've got in place, we can do it within 24 hours. We can bring that recovery time objective back towards the 20 minutes, but it's going to cost you this much money. <laughs> mm-hmm, do yeah. you want us to do that? And and, 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 the, and the funny thing is that at that point, the business often says, mm, maybe we could tolerate a little bit more downtime than in that case. And so it's about those conversations. It's about clarifying the assumptions and the understanding of both parties really would would negotiation be a, a, a good way of saying that negotiate where where you can meet in the middle yes i think that's yes that's a, a good way of putting it actually yeah it's getting the parties together to to discuss to to decide to agree and to negotiate those 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 variables yeah well i'm I'm going to end our first segment here because I want to jump into the the BIA stuff and and your thoughts on it. So uh, I'm going to end our first segment uh, a minute earlier. Uh, Today, we are talking with Andy Osborne, the author of Practical Business Continuity Management. We'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. listening to preparing for the unexpected with alex fullen email your questions to info at stone-road.com again that's info at stone-road.com now back to preparing for the unexpected welcome back to the show today we are talking with andy osborne the author of practical business continuity management andy at the end of the uh, first segment you started to talk about the bia um, now, I know you've got some opinions on that. You know, I've read your book and you know, uh, we've had a couple of emails back and forth. So in your opinion, how important is the BIA and, and the risk assessment? Because sometimes they get done hand in hand or, you know, in different orders, but they kind of uh, go together. How do you, how important do you think the BIA is? And do you think the traditional way of doing it is sufficient? Yeah, that's an interesting question because there's quite a lot of debate in the BC uh, world at the moment, isn't there, about business impact analysis and whether it's still necessary, whether it's important, whether it's a waste of time. And I think the the debate seems to be a little bit polarised, doesn't it? I, th- I suspect that's because the, the, the loudest voices get the get the airtime. And yeah. so you get those kind of extremes. So you've got the people on the one hand that are saying it's a complete waste of time. We don't need to do it anymore. Uh, no need for it. And then you've got the others evangelising about how important it is and why we should be doing it. I think actually the, the reality is, is somewhere in the middle. I think it's important that we, we do some kind of um, analysis to enable us to ensure that we are coming up with the right strategies and the solutions to underpin our business continuity plans. Um, and, and therefore, we need to, to think about what it is that's important to us and why and how important it is. 
Um, going back to what I said earlier, I think some interesting points were raised in, in one of your previous interviews about about the, the the people that we should be talking to 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 gain that information. Whether we call it a business impact analysis or something something different, mm-hmm. um, I think it's really critical that we talk to the right people. Because often if we are talking at too operational level and we're asking questions that are more strategic in nature, we get either the wrong answers or a blank look because the people that we're asking actually don't know that information. And, and, and a typical example of that is, is um, the, the, this issue about double accounting if, we, if, we, if we're looking into financial impacts in any detail. Um, so my opinion is that yes that analysis is important i do call it a business impact analysis largely because that's often what my clients are asking for um, but during the discussions about how we carry out that business impact analysis I'll, I'll put some some options to them in terms of the way that we facilitate that and my preferred approach is is twofold actually um, it's to to look initially with a, a senior group of people as senior as we can get hold of um, to talk about um, the the um, the business processes at a very high level, and the relative priorities and and importance of those those business activities, um, at, at kind of director level and, and, and that sort of um, high level. Mm-hmm. Um, what I don't do, um, I haven't done for a number of years now, is to is to start with the impacts and generate the recovery time objectives from. A combination of those impacts. What I tend to do in that senior man- management workshop is to um, come up with the, the activities at a high level and ask them what they think the recovery time ought to be if we suffer some sort of disruption to those processes. So mm-hmm. when do you think we need to be able to recover that activity in order to avoid a level of impact that you as, as senior managers, directors are unwilling to accept? And we talk about impacts, but we talk about them in very generic terms and very broad brush terms. So we might say, yes, there will be some financial impacts and they might get as high as a million pounds in, in two days or whatever it happens to be. And we might talk about the fact that there are likely to be some reputational impacts or some customer service impacts or, or, or other types of impact, health and safety, various others. But we don't say if we're down for four hours, what's the health and safety impact? What's the customer impact? What's the reputational impact? What's the financial impact? And, and the same for eight hours and 24 hours and two days and four days and whatever else. Because my experience is A, it takes an awful lot, lot of time to do that b if you're talking to the senior guys they don't want to go into that level of detail anyway their time is is precious usually and and simply getting four or five um senior people in a room together at the same time for a couple of hours is is a challenge in itself so we don't want to spend hours and hours going through masses of detail so we want that kind of broad brush high level strategic viewpoint really about what's important to the to the organization and, and a little bit of information about why so we are thinking about impacts, but as I say, very, very, very high level. The second part of the of the process that, that, that I tend to, to, to conduct is to take those outputs from that initial workshop and then talk to the um, the, the departmental heads the, the, the next level down, really, to get their view of the world. Uh, and, and the question really is, um, if we need to be able to recover activity X within these timescales, whether it's four, eight, 12 hours, whatever it is, what does that mean in terms of the resources and dependencies that, that you need to, to enable you to achieve that. So what does it mean in terms of people, IT systems, plant equipment, telephony, uh, whatever else? Uh, what are the, the resources that you need in what timescales to be able to achieve that? So I think it's still important to talk timescales because we are focusing uh, uh, potentially limited resources on, on recovering the right things in the right order. And one of the things that I often say, uh, both sessions actually, is that typically in any organization that I've dealt with over the years, there are things that we can potentially defer in the event of some kind of major disruptive incident mm-hmm. and things that we need to get on top of in relatively short order. And it's it's kind of the customer focused things and, and the, the revenue generating activities that tend to be up front and the more strategic long-term planning things that, that can get pushed out a little bit. And that's really what the business impact analysis is about in my view. It's about identifying the critical activities and when we talk about critical, we talk very much about time criticality. So when do you need it? How long can you do without it before it really starts to hurt? So high level with the senior guys, drill down into the detail with 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 a with a lower level, with a more operational level, 
and and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that if we try to go to that level of detail at the senior workshop, then possibly they don't know that level of detail anyway, and neither should they because that, they're more strategic in their in their roles. Um, but also, um, it, it, it's important that the guys on the ground that actually do the do the operational stuff have their say at that point. And, and looking at it from the other way, I think if we try and do the high level stuff, the strategic stuff at too low a level, we just get the wrong answers. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think quite often there is there is a big difference in my experience between business criticality and personal inconvenience. And I think sometimes if we're talking at too low a level, the, the, the criticality is based on how it affects me personally. I can't do my job if that's not there. But actually from a strategic point of view, don't take this the wrong way, but your job's not that important in the first two days. So those are the kind of conversations, and there's two distinct elements to it, I think. Very much driven by a, a business impact analysis I did some years ago now, uh, quite a few years ago, where I did the business impact analysis in uh, in the traditional way, in quotes, uh, insofar as we looked at the impacts over time in various categories, and then we um, derived the recovery times from those impacts. When does the impact become unacceptable therefore the recovery time objective is x Uh, and i think i did something like i don't know 20 interviews with departmental heads and i went back to present the findings to the to the senior team expecting them to spend 15 20 minutes saying yeah that looks okay but can we just tweak Mm -hmm. that that thing a little bit just move that to the right or the left and we spent something like three hours pulling it to pieces absolutely ripped it apart and pulled it to pieces and I walked yeah. out of that meeting thinking, why didn't we just do this workshop first? And I've done it since. <laughs> so that's kind but of informed my approach to a large extent. It's interesting you just gave that example because uh, years ago I did, uh, uh, I worked for a government agency for the province of Ontario where I live and did a BIA. We put everything together, you know, here's what's important and, you know, had our list of processes, et cetera, et cetera. And I presented it to the uh, sponsor, the person I was reporting to, who was the CFO. And he looked at the list and said, this is rather embarrassing. And that's a quote. This (laughs) is embarrassing. And I thought, oh my God, what did I do wrong? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, obviously what the top team you know, the, the executives, you know, people on his level believe to be important and a top priority is not what everyone else believes. He goes, we have a disconnect. You've identified something we didn't know existed. You know, so it's, int- and ever since then too, I've done the same thing. You know, use the approach you just described and I find it does work a lot better. Yeah. It's also quicker, I find as well, that, you know, mm-hmm. especially the initial workshop, because if you get the right people together, they know what's important. We don't need to yeah. go through the minutiae to come up with what they already know. I guess it's that consultant thing, isn't it? Of, of stealing your watch to tell you the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and it helps. You know, all the um, mid-level managers and team leaders, and you know, and you know, subject matter experts know that. You know, it, by having it, uh, this, this list of priorities given to them from senior management, you know, the leadership. This is where you need to focus. And it lets them know, ah, okay, then here. And then to your point, you don't end up going into all that minutia for processes or functions that really don't matter. Now, what about the risk assessment? Do you feel the same way? Um, I, I do. I tend to separate out the risk assessment from the business impact analysis um, because I think either either um, activity is uh, is large enough in itself. Uh, anybody that's ever sat through a, a risk assessment workshop will probably know that you can spend far too long <laughs> hours yeah. brainstorming risks thinking about um, likelihoods and impacts coming up with um, risk ratings and thinking about mitigation measures and to try and combine that with the business impact analysis I think is, 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 a, is a bridge too far really so I like to kind of separate them and I tend to do the business impact analysis first and then focus the risk assessment on those priority activities and more and more these days rather than doing a kind of traditional, if you like, um, risk assessment where we do that brainstorming of, of, of things that can go, can go horribly wrong and then rating them in some way with, with likelihood and, 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 um, and, and consequences is to, is to do more of a, a dependency modeling approach. So we think about the activity or the process and we think about the dependencies within that process and, and map those out in, in a nice, simple easy to, to, to visualize way 
that shows us where the single points of failure are because you know we could we could start a business uh, a risk assessment workshop now and in the next three hours we could brainstorm 100 risks or 300 risks or however many um and what do we then do with them do we do we try and mitigate them all do we try and write a plan for each of those risks or or do we try and do something a bit more generic so yes there are potentially things that we should identify specific risks to our organizations if we're in an earthquake zone or a flood zone for instance it kind of makes sense to think about the risks of of those things happening but we can we can come up with all sorts of of weird and wonderful risks um some of which may occur at some point in the future some of which are so way out that that, that, that they won't but the chances are we'll miss the risk that actually happens I can I can be almost certain that a lot of risk assessment has been done over the years mm-hmm. um, with regard to, to pandemic planning. Um, but when the risk actually uh, materialized, was it the same as the risk that, that we'd thought about? I suspect not. Um, so I think I think risk assessment is important. So don't get me wrong. I think it's important to identify some of the things that could materially affect us from a business continuity point of view and stopping those bad things happening if we, if we can possibly do that, if it's cost effective and reasonable to do so. Um, but also, I think um, if we look at it from more of a, a dependency point of view and think about where a risk occurring could could result in a, in, in a single point of failure failing, then we can focus our, our risk mitigation efforts a lot more than if we take that broad brush sort of scattergun approach of the mm-hmm. of the typical risk analysis. But I, but I keep them separate. I keep them separate from the business impact uh, analysis. Okay, fair enough. I was going to ask you about um, you know your thoughts on that uh, you know get rid of BIA and get rid of risk assessment approach, but you kind of addressed that with the, you know, uh, um, your comment uh, a moment, a few minutes ago, I should say, you know, where it's, you only hear the two extremes, yeah. you know, so you, you kind of addressed, addressed that question. Yeah, so um, uh, go ahead. If you've had I think, I think there's, there's, there is a place for, for both, um, both disciplines, if you like. Um, I think it's possible to get too hung up on that analysis. Um, I think we we should bear in mind that the reason that we're doing this is is to feed into it, into what comes next. So with the business impact analysis, it's about identifying priorities, so we can come up with the right continuity strategies and the solutions that underpin those strategies. And with risk assessment, it's about identifying those things that we really want to do something about, um, because. If we then focus too much on the analysis and then do nothing about it, it's all a bit of a waste of time, really. It's it's what we do about it that's really important. So we we ought to start. It's, it's the Stephen Covey thing, isn't it? Start with the end in mind, I suppose. That it, we're not analysing for analysis' sake. We're analysing for a purpose to, to to enable us to come up with the right strategies and solutions. Right, and you even have it in your book. Um, I think what did, I wrote it down. Analysis paralysis. Yeah. Called it analysis paralysis. Yeah, it's about about getting too hung up and spending too much time navel gazing, if you like, and getting bogged down in the detail and not yeah. converting that to action. Yeah, I I, I always equate that to um, like a fishbone diagram, where yeah. you have you know all these different branches, you know, and people focus on the tiniest little branch trying to to do that, but yet, you know, you're not focused on the main thing, you know, the the fire. Yes. One of the things that I probably said in that tip was um, something like, um, uh, it's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong. Yeah, yeah. So who who do you think, uh, let's jump to roles and responsibility, who owns all this process, you know, this business continuity management process? Or who should? (laughs) Who owns it, who should own it? That's a a really interesting question. And and it varies from organization to organization, actually. Um, I think... I think the business should own it. Um, it's it's not something that the business continuity manager should own as such. Um, the, the 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 business continuity manager or team or coordinator is there, in my view, to to uh, help develop the 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 policies, the procedures, the processes. But it should be up to the business to decide what's important to the business. In the same way that it's it's not for IT to decide what's what the business need in terms of IT recovery is for the business to do that so I think we need definitely need business representation um, so is that like BCM is is kind of a, a bridge between yeah, the two? you could kind of equate it to things like health and safety really and customer service mm-hmm. you know health and safety is not the responsibility in, in entirely of the health and safety manager the health and safety manager is there to make it happen and to and to facilitate 
But health and safety isn't entirely down to the health and safety manager in the same way that business continuity shouldn't be entirely down to the business continuity manager. In fact, one of the quotes that I like was from, a, I think it was a former director of uh, British Airways, who said something like, um, business continuity is everybody's job, just as customer services. If you have a business continuity manager, you should sack them. <laughs> and he went on to say, he went on to kind of qualify that. So I'm not suggesting we should sack all of our business continuity managers, but he was making the point that it needs to be owned by the business and not seen as something that, that a person does for the whole business. Mm, so, I so I think it's it's kind of important that we, we have some executive level ownership and sponsorship as well um, as, as well as that sort of subject matter expertise. And that's a perfect spot to end our second segment. Today we are talking with author Andy Osborne and his book, Practical Business Continuity Management, Top Tips for Effective Real-World Business Continuity Management. We'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Turn every weekend into a fun storytime adventure with Jesse Jameson and Friends. Each week, Jesse brings on a new guest with a great real-life story to share. And he tests the limits of some of his friends' storytelling abilities with fun questions and outrageous comments. If you have a story worth telling, you can be a part of the show, too. Listen to Jesse Jameson and Friends every Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Andy Osborne, the author of Practical Business Continuity Management. Uh, Andy, I just want to put this plug in there. We were having the chat uh, during our break here that uh, this, you've got more tips. You've got, a, I don't want to say as a second edition, but a new book with more tips about business continuity management coming out in January, correct? Indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, yeah, some, some more tips. Some more tips. So uh, everyone out there, look for uh, Andy's second book. Well, Yeah, I think 25th of January, I think, is, a, is the date we're aiming for. Well, I'm going to be looking for that because, like <laughs> I said, I like to read, so I'll be, uh, I'll be, Keeping my eye open for that as well. Excellent. And thank you for the other. So, so we might get you back on for a second time to talk okay, about yep. tips. <laughs> so our, our third segment, let's talk about the plan. So the, the business continuity plans, how detailed should these be? And, you know, who should be writing them? Who's involved with them? What, what should they contain? What shouldn't they contain? Uh, another good question. Yeah, I, I, um, it largely, I think, depends on the. I'm, I'm going to go back to the C word, the capability word that I used right at the start of, of, of the show, and it depends on the level of capability uh, of those um, that we uh, are um, asking to potentially put the plans into operation. So, if we have a team or teams that have been involved in in the development of those plans and strategies that have exercised and tested them and rehearsed them and have a good awareness of of their roles and responsibilities and what's expected, then potentially those plans don't need to be as detailed. Uh, And in fact, we've developed plans for clients um, that have been either a a single page or even something that that, that folds down into into a a credit credit card-sized um, thing that slips into into your wallet, um, so they don't have to be huge weighty tomes, um, but and that kind of implies that if the team is less experienced and less capable, that the plan should be more detailed, and that's possibly the case. However, um, 
I don't think business continuity management is about writing a plan. It's about developing those capabilities. And therefore, the plan is there. I'm not saying the plan is not important, so so don't get me wrong. Um, what I'm saying is the plan isn't the be-all and end-all of the process. The plan is there to support the decisions and the activities of the people that are, are, are putting them into operation, whether that's from an incident management point of view or from a, a, a technology recovery or a, a business recovery uh, point of view. And that capability doesn't come from, from merely writing a plan. There's all those other things that we've talked about, the education, the awareness, the exercising and testing, and the challenging and validating of assumptions. And the reality is, actually, that uh, in my experience, at least, uh, not many people turn to page one of the plan to see what to do when, when things start to go wrong. Mm-hmm. They kind of fall back on their their. Uh, their knowledge, their experience, their abilities, and they might refer to the plan if there's something that that they need to remind themselves of. So it's an aid memoir, or or for you know contact details and basic stuff like that. But generally, it's we've got. I like to give my clients credit for the fact that they've got some intelligent people that are able to um, make decisions, able to resolve problems, but potentially in a in a crisis or incident management situation. They're doing that in a in a in a context that isn't an everyday context, and so a little bit of a reminder doesn't go amiss from time to time. So, it's more about aid memoir than than slavishly following a plan line by line to 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 see what to do. So when we're developing plans with our clients, we tend to make them, we we don't make them particularly scenario specific. Um, because I think uh, if we go back to the risk assessment, if we brainstormed all the, all the scenarios, all the risks that might happen and write a plan for each of those, we could end up with a plan that's almost as tall as me, uh, never gets yeah. read. and People aren't going to read at the time anyway. So they, they end up either trying to, to, to cobble together a hybrid of the, of the plans that they did think of or they completely ignore it and, and wing it on the day, neither of which is particularly beneficial. So I think um, – so it's 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 as much about all that other stuff that that wraps around the plan as it is about the plan itself. So the plan's important, but it's not the it's not the only thing. So uh, I guess I don't want to upset uh, our audit colleagues that might be listening, but sometimes we <laughs> need a detailed plan to satisfy the requirements of an audit. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I wrote about a while ago was the fact that sometimes um, uh, many organisations have a business continuity plan that doesn't work. Or won't work in, in, in if, if using anger because it wasn't written for that purpose. It was written to satisfy an audit. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to bear in mind when we're developing those plans what the purpose of those plans is. And so they need to be easy to understand, easy to find the, 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 the stuff that we really need to find within them. But it's about knowing in advance what our roles and responsibilities are. I've got clients that, that don't look at the plan when we exercise. But that's because they know what's in it and they've rehearsed and they've exercised and they know what what the the, the priorities are and what their key actions are. I've got clients that when we do exercises, don't look at the plans because they just don't look at the plans. And I I reckon in the 200 plus exercises that I've facilitated over the years, I could probably count on certainly on the fingers of both hands um, the the people that referred immediately to the plan without being prompted. So so the reality is that people don't naturally turn to the plan. Therefore, we should consider that within our planning. And the plan is there to, to for, uh, for several purposes, I've said. It's there to, to, to prove that you've developed a plan and get your audit tick in the box or what have you. But it's also there to support those critical activities at the time. Um, and therefore, the people that are being asked to carry out those activities need to need to be aware of, of, of those roles and responsibilities rather than looking at the plan for the first time when when the buildings burnt down or the hurricanes happened or, or what have you. Yeah, I, I agree with you. My my very first client um, when I went solo, so to speak, self-employed, that they had a binder of hundreds of pages and it was so full of fluff mm. they couldn't use it. You know, they said, yo, it looks great. You know, audit thinks it's fantastic, you know, and I'm going, yeah, but can you use it? And they said, no, we don't, we're not sure where, where our part actually starts. <laughs> there was so much fluff in it. Yeah. You know, what I call fluff, in it, you know, how the document came about, the processes you, you used to book meetings, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I went, that's just content fluff that has nothing to do with what you need to do. 
So, you know, we cut that back, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things that I often say is, is, is um, you don't need to include the contents of your local Yellow Pages telephone directory within your yeah. plan. You certainly don't need to include your fire evacuation procedure in the plan because people are not going to look at the business continuity plan to see how to get out of the building. Um, and so, yeah, fluff is a good word for it. So we need to pare down to, to the really essential stuff that that, that, uh, that people will need in, in a in a potentially a difficult and stressful situation. Yeah. It, w- with regards to the plan, you have a, an interesting quote uh, in, in your book. The plan should therefore be seen as merely the documented presentation of management competence. What did you mean by that? Yeah, that's that capability thing. That's the that's the kind of documented evidence, I suppose, of, of the process that we've been through and the and the and the supporting documentation. But it's it's yeah, it comes back to that capability. I keep using the word capability, don't I? And I'm sorry if 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 listeners are getting bored with that now. But I think it's so important. Uh, the point being that it's not just about the plan; it's about all of that other stuff that wraps around it: the awareness, the education, the validating of assumptions, uh, the testing, the exercising, um, and all those other things. So the plan is there to to demonstrate that we've been through that planning process. I think it was Eisenhower that said. Um, uh, I'll paraphrase, plans are nothing, planning is everything. So it's the planning process that we go through in developing those plans that gives us the capability, not the plans per se that, 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 that do that. The, the next thing I wanted to touch on, um, and I just had, had it covered here, so that's, that's why I went blank there for a second. Uh, you mentioned something um, called backlog trap. Yeah. What is that? I thought I've never heard that expression before. Okay. I really okay. want to make sure we touched on it here. Okay. Um, so let, let's imagine that we've had some sort of major business disruption, uh, and we've we've kind of ceased working in the in the normal way for a period. And what tends to happen during that period of disruption is that a backlog of work builds up. It's either orders that haven't been fulfilled, or it's uh, you know it's, it's supplies that, that are either coming in and waiting to be delivered, or or, or haven't been ordered, or, or whatever. So a backlog of work um, has a tendency to build up. And um, I remember years ago, I saw uh, I, I saw a presentation where um, a a consultant was was trying to illustrate the, 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 this backlog by means of a of a supposedly clever formula and it was very very complicated but i think the rule of thumb is that it typically takes four to five times the length of the outage to then get through the backlog and back to normal so if if we're out for say an hour then it's probably going to take us about half a day to 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 process the backlog that was building up and get back to some kind of normality if we're down for a week um, then it can take a, a month. If we're down for a day, it's about a week. So it's that four to five times the length of the outage that um, that um, we, we need to be able to process the backlog that's built up while we were doing other things. And there may become a point where if we don't get on top of things quick enough, that backlog gets to a level where it's it's impossible to catch up because there's so much stuff to, to, to then try and um, mm-hmm. re-implement, re-import that we, we're never going to do it. So often, I think it's not thought about when we're considering our recovery time objectives and our strategies, um, the effort that might be required in, in processing those backlogs and the, the resources that might be needed to do so. So we might, when we're doing our, our impact analyses and our recovery requirements um, assessments and identifying how many people we need over various time periods, quite often we're looking at minimum numbers of people to keep the cost down potentially. Um, and we're not considering the fact that we might actually need more people to help get back to normal by processing those backlogs. So it's it's kind of a trap that it's possible to fall into if we don't think about it during the, the, the planning phase. I, I guess to in that regards, you kind of have to um, think of new contingencies like um, uh, reassigning people or temporarily reassigning people to step in and, and you know offer assistance, right? Or absolutely, those- yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's partly why we need to be able to identify our, our, our priorities early in the process, so that we know that if if a department or departments are not required for a period of time that they can potentially be redeployed to help with those time critical activities that that we do need to get on top of so that those those thought processes are quite important as well while we're going through the planning process 
Well, believe it or not, we only have three minutes left <laughs> already. Um, do you want to take two minutes and give some uh, overall thoughts on where maybe the industry should be going, especially considering we've had COVID-19 to contend with, you know, what you see happening in the future? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, COVID is a really uh, interesting. It's, it's, it's not giving it sufficient um, um um, um, credit is it really um, it's, but it's interesting from a professional point of view insofar as it's kind of proven uh, lots of organisations work from home strategies that people like me were, were were banging on about previously saying okay it's all very well saying that everybody can just work from home but have you tested it um, I think some organisations kind of got away with it to an extent because they had a little bit of time to to, to, to plan and think about it but I think so I think that the way that we do business is going to change um, going forward. Uh, there's going to be a lot more flexibility in, in, in working in terms of, you know, locations people are working from. But I think one of the key things that I see has come out of the COVID situation is the the fact that there is a, a much greater um, recognition of the people issues and the fact that in some kind of difficult situation, we're not all robots. Uh, you know, we, we are human. We do have have issues and, 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 and emotions and, and worries and other things. And the fact that this situation has been really difficult for some people, it's all very well saying you can just work from home, but it's not necessarily that easy to, to do that long term. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good that the industry is starting to think more about that side of things. I think it's something that we weren't particularly good at um, in, in the past. Um, obviously, technology is is a, is a big thing. That's what's really changed over over the the, the last few years, really. Um, you know that 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 cloud based um, stuff and the ability to work from all all sorts of locations. Um, but I think some of the the issues are still are still the same. It's still about it's about practical, workable um, plans that have. Uh, robust strategies and solutions that underpin them. So it's about understanding what's important to us and understanding what we do about it. It's about challenging and validating some of the assumptions that we make when we put the plans together. Um, so I think those are some of the things that we we we, uh, we need to think about moving forward. Well, great. Well, thanks for your time, Andy. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on the book, Practical Business Continuity Management, Thank Top you. Tips for Effective Real-World Business Continuity Management. And I want to restate that you have a, I guess we'd call it volume two. Yeah, I call it volume two. Yeah. Yeah. Volume two of your book coming out uh, roughly January 25th. Yeah, towards the end of January. Yeah. 2021. That's great. Congratulations on the new book. I'll be the first to congratulate you on it, even though it's not out yet. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, I am going to get a copy and maybe I'll reach out and we'll get you uh, back on and we'll talk about some new things. Excellent. I look forward to that. So thanks for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, sharing uh, with us. And everybody uh, that's out there, thanks uh, again for listening. If there's a topic, please reach out, get a hold of me, and uh, we'll see about getting you on the show. Thanks to everyone at Stone Road for sponsoring today's show. In the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.